future. There are no people. There are no people in the future. No people at all. There are no people in the future. Where did all my people go? There are no people in the future. Let me try my people call. Everybody, welcome, welcome. It is Friday, October 7th, 2022. Welcome to Raging Chickens Out to Coop Podcast. It is our Friday politics roundup. Yes, it is indeed. This is Kevin Mahoney, creator and founder of Raging Chicken. Each week we break down the good, the bad, and the ugly in state and national politics. You can help support this show right now by becoming a patron for as little as five bucks a month. Head on over to patreon.com slash RC Press for all the details. You can also help out the show by heading over to our YouTube channel if you're not there already. Smash that subscribe button, like the stream for this show, and hit that notification bell that you know every time that we go live. And thank you to all the new subscriptions this week. I really appreciate it. Helping us get the word out for sure and amplify the work, the amazing work of all the activists and organizers and troublemakers in our communities. And you know what? While we're at it, Let's not let Paul Martino and his friends buy our schools and push our, his extremist politics in our community. Raging Chicken has teamed up with Levelfield to launch a truly community-rooted pact to invest in organizing, supporting local and statewide progressive candidates, and unmasking the toxic organizations injecting our communities with right-wing extremism. We're putting small-dollar donations to work to beat back the power of big money. You can get more information and drop your donation at ragingchicken.levelfield.net. <clears throat> yeah, we are... We are just about a month out from the midterm elections. Ooh, it's going fast. On today's show, the Supreme Court is back in session. According to Ian Milheiser of Vox, quote, the Supreme Court's new term could be even more consequential than its last one. Quote, yes, a single case, Moore v. Harper, Milheiser writes, threatens to fundamentally rewrite the rules governing federal elections, potentially giving state legislatures nearly limitless power to skew those elections. Of which I said, oh, great. Great. I think that's slated to be heard on Monday, if I'm not mistaken. A right-wing legal organization based out of Wisconsin, the Institute for Law and Liberty, man, can they name them, is suing the Biden administration over plans to cancel some student debt. Why? Well, you see, the Biden administration has stated that, you know, his student loan cancellation program will actually help narrow the racial wealth gap and advance racial equity. Right? Oh, okay. Right? Well, it makes sense, right? That the plan that the people who are burdened most with the student debt, right, and are disproportionately impacted by legacies of kind of systemic racism. Oh, okay. Yeah, that would make sense. This is going to help out, right? Especially when you look at the disproportionate impact and the disproportionate targeting, basically, um, by predator these kind of predatorial, like, schools, the targeting of, of, of African-American women. Right? Yeah, you can see how that would work out, right? Well, no, 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 no. The Institute for Law and Liberty argues that the action constitutes an improper racial motive. Yep. They're actually suing discrimination against white people. How about this? How about this? 
you're arguing against that it violates the equal protection clause. I mean, just what I mean. <clears throat> this, this, this is what these people do. Biden announced this week that he is pardoning thousands of people convicted of simple possession of marijuana, saying that in a statement that, quote, too many lives have been upended because of our failed approach to marijuana. It's time that we right these wrongs. Well, got to agree with that. The executive action would apply to more than 6,500 people convicted of simple possession under federal law or under the D.C. code. Right. Because, uh, you know, that's all he has the, the ability to pardon. Right. Is people uh, that are uh, federal pardons. But he also urged state legislatures and state governors to do the same. That'll have an impact. And porting in the Atlantic, Robinson Meyer gets an uncharacteristically upbeat report on how the Inflation Reduction Act could prove to have a much bigger effect on a shift to post-carbon economy than most people expected. But that comes in response to a surprisingly cheery report by the investment bank Credit Suisse. And you just kind of like reading this. I'm like, literally, I was reading this one. I'm like, what? Where's the happy? Where? Who? Where the happy sauce come from? But it's kind of an interesting argument and assessment. And on the climate front, hundreds of youth activists from the global south gathered in Tunisia to prepare for a collective fight for justice and demand climate action at next month's COP27 meeting in Egypt. This is going to be a big one, folks. Uh, we are continuing to see unprecedented impacts um, because of climate change. And COP27 is right around the corner. Scientists are sounding the alarm bells once again. When is something going to happen substantial and quickly? We shall see. A little closer to home, as promised, the ACLU filed a lawsuit against the Central Bucks School District, arguing that the district is creating a hostile environment for LGBTQ students. We're waiting to see when similar moves will happen against Penridge. Right? Gotta love that. And the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, or CHOP, and other major medical groups are urging the U.S. Department of Justice to investigate threats of violence against the hospital. Um, and these other or other medical uh, providers too, because they provide care to transgender children. Yes, yes. So, so there's been all these uh, right-wing social media influencers who basically been urging um, people to, uh, you know, take action, direct action against the hospitals. And usually on the right, what they're talking about is violence. And while the right wing yams on about teachers unions influence on elections, turns out that, well, one man, guess who he is? Jeffrey Yass. That's right. Has spent more than five times what PSEA has spent during 2022. Yass's spending consistently dwarfs that of teachers union as shown by Philly Power Research. And uh, just as a kind of a shout out and some info, there will be a protest in Philly next Thursday. Uh, that's October 13th at 1130 a.m. That will be to protest Jeffrey Yass's ongoing funding of far right politicians and efforts to redirect resources from public to private schools. That protest is going to take place outside Yass's Susquehanna International Group City Office uh, group's office that's on City Ave at 401 City Ave. Um, City of 2020, 220, 401 City Ave 220, might be the office number. That's in Ballasinwood, PA, uh, 19004. You can get all the details by clicking on the link in the notes. I'm going to put it right now in the chat too as well. For those folks who may be down in the Ballasinwood um, thing, protest. <clears throat> 
uh, for next week. Good. Uh, today's last call. Yeah, I got my coaster, my coaster, <laughs> my COVID booster this week, and I've got a story for you. I've got a story for you. Yes, indeed. Yeah, for more PA Progressive Talk, tune to the Rick Smith Show's Rick Smith Show's live stream, 9 p.m. Eastern, as YouTube channel, Twitter, and Facebook. Now, this week he's got something special going on. He's doing he's doing the uh, Working Class Heroes tour, where uh, he's got an RV. He's uh, driving around, um, particularly in the kind of the Midwest. Uh, upper Midwest in particular, went through kind of Pennsylvania, interviewing people about, um, one, the way it was, two, how it crashed and kind of got worse, and three, how people are organizing now and fighting back and kind of charting out a better future. Um, talking to people on the ground, working families, working folks uh, on the ground, working to fight back throughout the Midwest. So uh, do check it out. Um, pretty good. Check out all the details at therisksmithshow.com for the latest across all those platforms. And you got to check out Sisters of the Night Caucus podcast if you've not already. You can find it on Anchor, Spotify, iTunes, wherever you get your podcast. The amazing PA women stirring the political cauldron behind this podcast, Rock the House. And you know where the bodies are buried. Make sure to follow them on Twitter, too, and at the Night Caucus. That's at the Night Caucus on Twitter. And attention all you gamers out there. The Game Inn is a Quickertown-based, black-family-owned gaming store. They're friends of the show. They've got everything from retro N64s, the latest consoles, video games for all platforms, collectible, collectibles, action figures, Funko Pops, walls of Funko Pops. And kids start getting discounts when they get A's at the report card. School's in session, folks. Check them out on their Facebook page and follow them on Twitter at, at the Game Inn. That's with two N's. If you got a question about a game, look for something hard to get, shoot them a message or drop them an email at thegaminpa at gmail.com. And, uh, um, you know, got news from Amy this week that uh, she uh, paid a visit over to the Game Inn and got a pretty good deal on some trade-ins. Um, kind of walked in with a bunch of older equipment uh, and walked out uh, with a, uh, a brand new console. So uh, definitely check out the folks over at the Game Inn. Uh, they're great people. They're awesome. Like I said, friends of the show. Uh friends you know my one of my son's best friends family owns it so that's what well, i love to give them the uh the shout outs they're just great folks um it's great to hear people headed on over there and checking them out and a shout out goes to jonathan mann who wrote our intro song there are no people in the future you can check out all his great stuff on his youtube page and follow him on twitter at, at song of day man that's with two n's that's at song of day man on twitter well, on Out the Coop Live, uh, we had a great show this past week with Ali Shaw of Little Sith, Little Sis. Um, they are a um, a grassroots uh, kind of watchdog network, right? Um, we talked about her new report, Jeffrey Yass, the billionaire behind Pennsylvania's right wing machine. Uh, it was a great discussion. Do check that out. Uh, this coming Monday, um, uh, we will be off. Uh, we'll not have a show on Monday night, in part because it is my son's birthday. Yes, he's going to be 14, and uh, I'm going to be celebrating a birthday with him, right? However, um, I, we'll see if I can get this done before then. Um, but I'm going to do a, a kind of a special kind of response to it. Be, yeah, you know, I used to call these like Out the Coop Extras. Um, so I'll be releasing that primarily with our podcast and on our Patreon site. It'll be it'll be free for everybody to check out. Um, it'll probably be posted a little bit earlier for our patrons and then released for everybody uh, um, shortly afterwards. But it's a response to um, yesterday's episode of the New York Times podcast called The Run Up. Right, um, The Run Up. This it's been a it's been a pretty good show. I've been actually very much enjoying this, and this one was also a very good show. Um, 
so I, I'm not I, my response to it is not so much like a critique or something of that but I found it very interesting. The first part of the show was about um, what's happening to these school boards in Texas and this right-wing playbook and how this um, one company um, called, like, what, Patriot Cellular or Patriot <clears throat> something like this. Um, it's basically a kind of a right-wing Christian conservative-owned company that does cell phone stuff. Um, it got a big shout-out at CPAC, right, um, uh, for what they're doing and they've funneled tons of money into local school board elections and they they keep on winning and so the first part of the show was talking about that the second part of the uh, well maybe the middle part of the show they interview uh, Kirsten Gillibrand um, about a comment that she had made a while back about Democrats having a messaging problem and it's a really interesting discussion and but what's what I found most interesting was what about the unsaid Right. And about the work that this this word kind of messaging does within democratic politics. Um, and so I'm going to talk a little bit about that. So I've got the, the audio I'm going to go through that that section of the podcast a little bit um, and then kind of talk through it a little bit. Um, and I think it's important for us to kind of be thinking about as we're kind of moving forward. Um, uh, yes, into the midterms, but beyond that. Um, and there are some of these kind of systemic problems in the way that I think, uh, say, Democrats continue to understand what the what the what the problems are, right? Why they're um, losing, right? Um, some of the struggles are right, and then where the energy actually is in the party. Um, and I can tell you that where the energy is, there's not a problem around messaging. So, so there's a bunch of stuff like that. So anyways, it was just kind of interesting engagement. So I thought this was a good opportunity to kind of uh, do one of these out to coop extras. So I'll do that and have that released this week. <clears throat> so look, everybody, we want a progressive future. We need progressive media. Support Pull No Punches, homegrown progressive media today. Become a patron of Raging Chicken for as little as five bucks a month. Just head on over to patreon.com slash Press and become a patron today. Uh, we're here the fight. We're here for the fight. And we need you. Become a patron for the good price of a good beer once a month. Help keep the media in the movement and the movement in the media. Become a patron for as little as five bucks a month by heading over to patreon.com slash rcpress today. Yes. Yeah, so uh, how's everybody doing today? Uh, hope you're all doing well. Um, I had a, a seriously exhausting week this week. Um, in part because it's uh, I've had a lot of, you know, a lot of my student papers come in around this time. So I've just been doing a ton of grading. Um, the weather, as everybody knows, was just the rain was like constant and it was cold and it was dreary, which is kind of added to it all. Um, so it's just been, you know, I've been trying to stay on task with kind of keeping my grading done, which means I'm staying up later, which means I'm not going to get as much sleep, which, you know, and it just kind of snowballs. We know how it is. Um, glad you're doing well, Emily. Good to hear it. Um, yeah, so, so there you have it. Um, and welcome to everybody who's joining the show today. Uh, I've got a bunch of folks already joining on. Welcome to all our podcast listeners. Um, we appreciate it. You know, I didn't say this at the top of the show. If you're listening to this on a podcast, you know, make sure you're leaving us a review and wherever you're getting your podcast. I mean, you know, when you kind of give us that five-star review on Apple Podcast or on Spotify Podcast or right here on Podbean, um, when you do that, right, basically what that does is that helps other people find the show. 
right? Um, it lets it lets you know the the algorithm basically, really what it is, lets the algorithm know that hey, I'm listening and I like what I'm hearing, right? And that helps to kind of pass it on to other folks who might be interested in this stuff too as well, right? The goal there, right? You think about it as, as a community effort, as a community effort, it's help amplifying the people we have on the show, right? Help and amplifying the work that's happening in our communities and amplifying some of the people that we interview as part of Out to Coop Live and the podcast, right? Um, and so uh, I appreciate that too as well. Um, I've been, folks have been doing that. It's been great. Um, it's been great to see so many people coming in, new subscribers on our YouTube channel and on our pod, Podbean. Uh, so it's just, it's been good stuff. So I appreciate all of you. And a special shout out goes again to all the Twitter warriors out there who are always kind of, uh, you know, tweeting stuff out. We've got a show coming up. They're making sure they're spreading the word, letting other people know in their communities, uh, in their kind of uh, friend list, as it were. Um, uh, what's happening and getting people on over to here. It's always phenomenal. Um, so, yeah, so <clears throat> let's start with the Supreme Court, I guess, because um, Supreme Court is back in session. <clears throat> and um, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> I feel stuffed up with allergies, too, this week. Um, and Ian Milheiser, I've talked about him on the show before. Ian Milheiser, uh, he's he's got, you know, He's written extensively about the Supreme Court. Um, he's got a fantastic book, which I'm just going to completely uh, space the name of. Um, but um, I remember reading his book. Um, well, first I heard Ian Milheiser, I should say, on the Rick Smith show, right, um, that uh, Ian would come on um, and kind of talk about Supreme Court cases and all this stuff. And I was always like, man, this guy, I got to read more of him. So I did. And then he published this book about the Supreme Court. Um, I should put, let me just see, Ian Milheiser book. <clears throat> um, he's got a new book out. Oh, that's right. It's called, uh, oh my God, I've read a whole bunch of his stuff now that's looking like. <laughs> so one, uh, he just had a book called The Agenda, which I read, which is actually really good. This is, uh, The Agenda, is, it's, um, it's like How a Republican Supreme Court is Reshaping America. That's actually an excellent book. Um, <clears throat> The book that I was thinking of, however, is called Injustices, the Supreme Court's History of Comforting the Comfortable and Afflicting the Afflicted. And why I wanted to make sure I shouted out that book is because um, what that book helped me understand was that the Supreme Court in the United States um, has historically not been a force of good, <laughs> right? <clears throat> Which was completely opposite the way that I grew up thinking about the Supreme Court, right? I mean, because you think about it, I mean, it was <clears throat> I was I was born <clears throat> 1969, <clears throat> and we had a Supreme Court at the time, which was um, you know dominated by kind of. I mean, what we would call today is liberal leaning justices, but they uh, ruled on a whole number of course of, of cases um, that were kind of instrumental, like the Brown v. Board of Education. Right. We talk about desegregation. We're talking about all sorts of board, the civil rights law. Right. Um, 1973, of course, was Roe v. Wade. Right. <clears throat> and which we saw this kind of progress. So I grew up with the story of the Supreme Court, as I think a lot of people did. Right. Um, as being this, you know, the force of justice, right? You know, the capital J justice, that they were going to do the right thing. And very often what the right thing meant, right? At least in my mind, this is growing up, 
is that we're leading for an expansion of democratic rights, right? Um, kind of more justice and like equality for more people, right? Yes, it was a slow process and the law law process was slow, and um, but eventually it was there. And it echoed, you know, that cliche that we always hear from um, Dr. Martin Luther King, right? You know, the, the arc of history is long, but it bends towards justice. And, you know, I grew up with the story about the Supreme Court being one of those actors bending that arc towards justice, right? But um, when we started seeing all this backsliding, right, and the uh, Republican agenda to basically, you know, pack the courts with, uh, with, you know, really ideologues, right, from the federal, the federal court system on the way up, this has been Mitch McConnell's primary goal. Um, it felt like, oh, no, the, the Supreme Court is being turned into like this political thing, right? It's it's not doing what it's supposed to do, right? It's not going to hold up. And even it was hard for a lot of media commentators, right, and journalists to write about what the Supreme Court does because there was always this appeal that like, well, but the Supreme Court as an institution, you know, is bound by the law and they're going to do this. But now we've seen they don't care about the law, right? So anyways, Milheiser's book, right, um, Injustices, basically calls out that narrative Right. And then basically says, look, that period of time, right, the post World War II, like say, like the like late 60s into the, uh, you know, the, or the late 50s into the 60s and then 70s, that period of, say, quote unquote, progressive sp Supreme Court, right, doing the work of bending, you know, the arc of history towards justice, um, that was an aberration in American history. That was not the norm. Right. And Ian Milheiser and others have also been have written more recently that, you know, what we're seeing now is closer to a return to where the Supreme Court has been normally in American history. And that is in defense of elites. And that really kind of I remember when I first heard the argument that kind of shook me because I, like a lot of people, I think, you know, progressive left and things like this, look to the Supreme Court as being that stopgap, right? That the kind of thing where, yes, things could get crazy, but it could only be so go so far because the Supreme Court was going to make sure that it didn't go off the rails, right? And, and having faith in the Supreme Court as an institution. And then to basically just be told, nope, well, you know what? The Supreme Court has not always been like this. As a matter of fact, it, 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 the time that it did good things was very small. So this is being a moment of kind of return to where we were in, you know, we've talked about this before in the show, the Lochner era, era right? Like to kind of like the, uh, the right to contract, you know, basically, you know, child labor time. Yeah, sure. That's fine. Right. What minimum wage laws? That's crazy. What do you mean to limit it on the hours that you have to work? Never, never, never. You don't need that. Oh, yeah. There's like a certain, you know, America is for certain people. We want to protect the powerful and to protect the elites. And that's what we're going to do. Right. So we're kind of like returning to this time when, you know, which was more consistent with the traditions of the, of the Supreme Court, which is tough. I think the Roe v. Wade decision or, you know, the um, um, the overturning of Roe v. Wade, I should say, um, is the, uh, the kind of material wake up call that the Supreme Court is going to indeed do whatever the hell it wants to do.
and it is going to act in the interest now, right? Not just of the elites, but of a very particular part of the elites, right? These right-wing Christian nationalist conservatives, right? That's where we're going. So anyways, he had this great piece and I linked this in the show notes. Um, and I, I should note, I should note, by the way, that um, I, I just, this just occurred to me I don't know, a few weeks back. And then I said, oh, I got to figure out a way to do this. But I'm always like strapped for time. So when I always talk about the show notes is basically uh, the show notes that I post to our podcast all have kind of embedded links in them, right? So you just like click on them and go. Um, however, in when we I transfer over the notes into the full notes the, of, of uh, the show to YouTube, those embedded links don't show up. In order for me to get them to show up, I actually have to kind of copy each one of the links out. And I haven't been doing that. I try to do, I've been trying to do a little bit more in there. So my apologies for those folks who are looking for uh, the show notes. What I think I might do is um, I might just kind of uh, provide one link um, in the show notes that will take, a, take, take you to a kind of Google Doc of the show notes where you'll be able to click on all those links um, just as a way to make sure that if people want to hear more about what's um, what I'm referring to, we can get it there. So. Um, I'm sorry, that's completely derailing. I, I'm exhausted today, so like I'm going to be a little bit all over the place, I'll tell you that. So anyways, Ian Milheiser um, wrote this piece for Vox called The Supreme Court's New Term Could Even Be More Consequential Than the Last, right? Um, and starts it out uh, like this. As the headline of this piece is likely to turn a few heads, the Supreme Court's last term, after all, was an orgy of conservative excess unlike uh, any since the court's Great Depression-era attacks on the New Deal, and it culminated in the demise of Roe v. Wade, arguably the most closely watched Supreme Court decision since the justices declared school segregation unconstitutional in 1954. Right, so kind of acknowledging, so, okay, look, recognize this is a big claim, given what the monumentous, like, like overturning of Roe v. Wade this past summer um, is, but is this term a potentially even more consequential issue than the right to an abortion is on the court's docket democracy itself a single case moore v harper threatens to fundamentally rewrite the rules governing federal elections potentially giving state legislatures some of which are highly gerrymandered themselves nearly limitless power to skew those elections right and there's some other cases that he talks in there so he kind of reviews each one of these he talks about um um, one that's about racial gerrymandering, another one uh, that was heard this week had to do with whether or not tech companies can be held liable for um, um, driving people toward extremism, um, which is a really, I was reading about it last night. It's a just really kind of complicated and interesting case but that have may have really significant consequences. Uh, there's another case that's being that I think was heard this week as, as about um, the Clean Water Act, right? And um, what constitutes officially U.S. waters? It has to do with this case where um, a family bought this property that um, it butts up against this lake, but between the lake and their property are a bunch of wetlands. As a matter of fact, part of the property they bought is because of wetlands, and they wanted to fill in these wetlands with dirt, stone, and sand, right? And then the federal government stopped them because you can't do that because the uh, Clean Water Act, that these wetlands act as a, a filter, right, for pollution, and they argue that, no, this doesn't constitute a U.S. water. So something like that. But um, the point being that 
they are potentially, we don't know yet. Um, it was actually a really interesting piece. You can check out that. I put a, a link to Ian Milheiser on Vox in the show notes too as well. So you can go check out his specific reporting on this stuff. Um, but, you know, it says that it doesn't look like they're going to completely, uh, good morning, Kirsten, um, doesn't look like they're going to completely get rid of the Clean Water Act, um, but it has the potential of really limiting the scope of what can happen. Um, what's this one here? Let me see. Oh, there's another one that could undercut uh, Medicaid and erase legal safeguards intended to halt the cultural genocide of indigenous people. I mean... There's some really big cases that are going to be heard by the Supreme Court. However, the one I want to just kind of talk briefly about today is uh, this one that's focused on this thing called like the independent judiciary. Or, I'm sorry, the um, independent state legislatures um, thing. It's been this widely discredited theory that basically um, state legislatures basically are ultimately the ones that determine how votes are allocated. Right. Um, and if you recall, this is something that uh, the Trump administration or the outgoing Trump administration after they lost the election was this is one of their legal strategies was try to basically say, well, look, the state legislature can just basically choose its own slate of electors and it doesn't need to abide by the voters. Right. It can just choose its own slate of electors and get rid of that. That's because how these federal these elections are held um, in the Constitution is um, given to the states. OK, um, <clears throat> instead of me trying to explain it, let me just read some stuff from Milheiser. Um, I think because he does it much better than I would. So it says it's difficult to exaggerate the stakes in more. Right. This again, this is uh, more v. Harper in more. Which could neutralize the parts of state constitutions that protect the right to vote and give an unprecedented amount of power to state legislators, some of which are heavily gerrymandered. Moore involves the, quote, independent state legislature doctrine, unquote, a theory that the Supreme Court has rejected many times over the course of more than a century, but that at least four members of the current court have signed on to in, in one form or another. That's the significant part. Two provisions of the Constitution state that the rules governing federal elections shall be determined by each state's legislature. And that's a direct quote. Each state's legislature. For more than a century, the court has understood this word, at least when used in this context, to refer to whatever body within that state has the power to make laws, what the court has referred to as the legislative power. So if a state ordinarily permits its governor to veto legislation, or if the people of a state can ordinarily enact laws via a ballot initiative, state laws governing federal elections are made in the same way. Under the independent state legislator theory, however, the word legislature must be understood to mean the body of elected representatives which make up a state's legislative branch of government. Indeed, under the strongest version of this theory, state governors are forbidden from vetoing bills governing federal elections because the governor is not the legislature. And state courts are forbidden from striking down election laws that violate the state constitution because courts are not the legislature. Right? So it basically takes all of the power over what happens in, a, in an election away from any stopgap part of the process. So if you recall, like just take Georgia, for example, is that one of the things that, you know, has been has been 
we saw all throughout what uh, was happening during um, the the Trump challenges to the election, um, throughout the big lie, pressure was put on um, Georgia to basically just have a new slate of electors, right? But the um, department or the um, Secretary of State basically says, no, we're not going to do this because that's illegal, right? So therefore stopped it, right? And said it was a stopgap measure, right? Or that you could have, say, for example, new uh, gerrymandering laws that were put into a place like in, I think in Alabama was the case and a bunch of other ones, a bunch of other states. And then the Supreme Court came in. This happened in Pennsylvania, too, as well. The state Supreme Court comes in and says, nope, that's a violation of kind of our state law. Here, what they're saying is like, nope, the governor, the State Department, the uh, the Secretary of State, the uh, Department of Elections, the uh, Supreme Court of the state, um, none of those matter. It's only the state legislature. All right. So that's part one. Part two of this is that, as we know, right, this is where, you know, one of one of the, you know, I from, you know, ask me one of the greatest failures of the Obama administration, right, was that it failed. Right. I mean, in a wave election, right, in a massive having a massive mandate coming into office. Right. Especially in those first two years. Um, the Obama administration. um basically put its attention towards building its brand, right? There's been a lot of reporting about this over the years where all those organizations and all those organizations that helped get Obama um, kind of elected, these kind of outside organizations were suddenly kind of cut off, right? Um, and uh, Obama, instead of using all this kind of energy and organization um, they had for around the elections, which had really, had it's really significant outreach to communities that hadn't been engaged in elections, instead of using that as a way to further build out organization, they used it primarily as kind of an, an Obama-controlled um, organization. Right? People said they, what they could have been doing is building out their state, you know, the, um, the state organizations, but they didn't do that. And then consist consistently focused everything on the federal level. And so what happened in the meantime was that, you know, during that period of time, there were more um, state legislators, legis le Legislators that turned from, say, red to blue or blue to red, right, lost more governorships than at any point in kind of in recent history, lost more state legislatures, lost more um, state representatives all right across the board, went from kind of Democrat to Republican. Right. And that happened right ahead of the 2010 elections or 2010, which when the census was coding together. We know that Republicans had this red map plan, right, which that's what they were going to do. They knew that if they could control state legislatures, then what they would be able to do is write the rules and gerrymander, gerrymander the system, right? Change the way that their kind of districts are drawn to ensure higher majorities at the state level and then and kind of, you know, persistent majorities at the at the federal level. And that's precisely what they did. And, you know, the Democrat Democratic Party and the Obama administration at the time were largely asleep at the wheel at that. And they went ahead and they did this. Um, <clears throat> so anyways, that happens. And. Um, they again, they win the uh, Republicans win big elections and this kind of like, again, we had that first insurgency, that kind of uh, Tea Party right wing, uh, you know, kind of insurgency. They got a lot of people elected with these kind of extreme views. 
They take over state legislators. They rewrite the rules of the election. Right. So now we've got the majority of states have state legislatures that are dominated by Republicans in ways that Democrats can never make up the difference. Right. So like in Wisconsin, I forget the exact numbers, but, you know, even though, um, say, like a majority of or close to a majority of um, people in the state voted for Democrats. Right. Um, the Republicans control the state legislature by like a 60, 40 margin. Right. Um, and that's by design. So um, that was step one. Now, step two is that since they've done this, if we have this independent state legislature theory, right, those are the state legislators which will ultimately determine which electors go forward, right? And so even though you could have a federal, you can have a presidential election in which, um, say, like a Democrat could win the election in that state, the state legislature could basically say, well, we get to decide which electors we are going to send forward. And we are we we consider this vote where citizens go out and they cast their ballot. We consider that advisory. Right. Like a plebiscite, like one of those kind of suggestion boxes that you get kind of as you're leaving a restaurant. Right. Well, what do you guys think about it? We're going to consult with the people, but then ultimately we're going to decide what to do. That's really what we're talking about here. And if that goes through, like, I mean, it's hard to imagine a scenario in which Democrats could win at the federal level for the foreseeable future. I mean, that's it. I mean, it's that big of a deal. So let me continue with him here. It's unclear if the court will go that far. Thank God. Um, but even a less aggressive decision in Moore um, would fundamentally alter the ba balance of power between states and the Supreme Court and potentially give the court's GOP-appointed majority an unprecedented amount of say over how federal elections are conducted. The ultimate power to interpret a state law, for example, rests with state courts, not federal judges. But even a relatively narrow reading of the independent state legislature doctrine would give the same Supreme Court that's recently shown such hostility to voting rights, voting rights laws, the power to overrule a state Supreme Court's interpretation of that state's election law on the theory that the state Supreme Court somehow misinterpreted an act of the state legislature and this error must be corrected by the Supreme Court. Right now, what happens is the state Supreme Court rules over that over state law. That's it. That's done. Not any longer if this is the case. Even if the court does not issue a maximalist decision in more, in other words, it could still centralize authority over all presidential and congressional elections within itself, empowering the justices to read state election laws in ways that benefit their preferred party or candidates. And in the worst case scenario for democracy, Republicans in key swing states like Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin, where the GOP controls highly gerrymandered state legislatures could gain an unlimited ability to decide how congressional elections are conducted and who wins their state's electoral votes. Right. So, yes, lots of legal stuff and things like this, but it is nonetheless a. I mean, this is like kind of like a make or break for democracy kind of ruling. 
right? Um, and are we going to uh, destroy democracy slowly, or they're going to go all in like they did with Roe? We, we're going to find out. So, anyways, uh, but I do, you know, check out. I would highly recommend following uh, Ian Milhiser's reporting over at Vox. Um, it's really important. Um, you know, I don't know about you, but I'm not someone who has. I go, but I don't, I don't like normally follow the Supreme Court all the time, right? Uh, it's not one of my go-to's, right? Um, but I know I fully understand, obviously, as we all do now how absolutely critically important as so there's you know two sources that i would generally consult with that it'd be ian milheiser's uh reporting here and there's a, the excellent scotus blog which is also um has great analysis of a little bit more a little bit more legalese on that one but it's also excellent um anyway so um and then here we've got this uh glorious little uh story um this is coming out of the Washington Post that a right wing legal organization um, called the Institute for Law and Liberty in Wisconsin um, is basically taking up the case of this group called the Brown County Taxpayer Association. And basically what they're arguing is that when Biden came out and said he's going to cancel up to $20,000 in student loan debt, He's saying, well, that's that's a federal law, right? That is, uh, it violates, actually, it violates federal law because it intentionally seeks to narrow the racial wealth gap and help black borrowers, right? It's like the audacity of these people. It's pretty, it's pretty, pretty crazy. So let me give you a kind of what a response. So uh, Genevieve's uh, 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 Bonadias, uh, Bonadias Torres of the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under the Law said that the lawsuit, quote, turns the Equal Protection Clause on its head, unquote, as the mere awareness of race or a disproportionate impact does not violate or does not, does not amount to a violation of the law. She said conservative groups have unsuccessfully used similar arguments to challenge high school admissions policies that expand access for marginalized students. Quote, I could think of a host of policies and practices that disproportionately help white people that, again, are not being put under the legal microscope. For example, right? the uh the mortgage tax deduction right that is basically was designed for to promote suburban developments and disproportionately affects white people right because white people have a higher rate of home ownership for systemic reasons right that would be an example so um anyways uh bonadias torres said um Bonadiz Torres said, said um, the lawsuit, quote, is indicative of the attacks that we're seeing on any opportunities that try to get people relief that they're due. Targeting relief to borrowers with the greatest economic need, the White House has said, could address the racial wealth disparity. The administration has also noted the benefits to borrowers of all ages and for those for low and middle income households. It has framed the plan as a way to give Americans a stronger financial footing coming out of the pandemic. Right. Um, now, uh, what am I trying to say here before <clears throat> I don't want to go off on a rant? Um, basically there, there's a couple things that I, that I want to say about that. One, obviously this is kind of like, it's despicable in what happens here. 
And the fact that the Biden administration just acknowledged that there would be a disproportionate impact, right? Um, that basically said, look, if we are going to concentrate on borrowers that are that may um, uh, that have incomes below one hundred twenty-five thousand dollars, right? Um, that's who is going to qualify for this. And if they also qual- if they also get Pell grants, right, um, or Pell loans, then they will get an additional ten thousand dollars. So you have upwards of twenty uh, thousand dollars. Now, because, right, we have African Americans, um, uh, Latinos, right? I mean, you know, people of color more broadly, but you know, particularly African Americans, um, are disproportionately poor. And we can talk, we can go on ends of talking about how systemic racism has kind of contributed this and can keeps it this way, right? That's the part of the legacy of this country, right? Is that it keeps black people poor, right? So because of the systemic racism, right? If I do something like this, right? I forgive $10,000 worth of loans, right? For people who are uh, under $125,000 and for those Pell Grant loans or those Pell loans, those, if you have those loans, right? Then you have to demonstrate economic need, right? So you have to be poorer to qualify for those loans. So you're going to get kind of forgiveness of those loans, right? That means that if you are kind of, you know, if you're gearing everything towards the people that are most in need, you're necessarily going to be overlapping with kind of um, kind of black folks and people of color in this country, right? Because of systemic racism. And that's what Biden was basically acknowledging. Right. And so, and then these people come along and they're going to use laws that had been historically used um, to gain civil rights they're going to use this as a way of ensuring that they keep the boot on the neck of people of color. It's disgusting. The second point that I want to make about this is that this is one of the problems of doing all this means testing nonsense, right? Is that Democrats are in love with means testing. Right. They don't want a universal program. They want to kind of, well, who's deserving? And they want to draw a line who's deserving and who's not deserving. Right. And I understand budgetary reasons. I understand. Right. While they're like, we're trying to kind of make it. But, you know, there's a whole other reason why part of the arguments about, you know, the pay for arguments that they have are just nonsense to begin with when it comes to federal government spending. Right. With a fiat currency like we have. But that's a bigger conversation. But even so, basically what they're trying to do is they're trying. They think what they're doing is they're. Letting their base know, I guess, or a certain constituent of their base that, no, they're not going to give the handouts to the rich. Right. Because somewhere in there's these kind of Democrats minds, they still need to kind of like pretend like they're not the party of the rich, right? Uh, you know, whatever. I mean, they they have to keep up that face for some reason, right? And so they think about who's deserving, right? And it's 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 all sorts of messed up. <clears throat> Why is that a problem? Well, because number of things ones like this. Once you start dividing people up with a program like this, right? You say you're deserving, you're not deserving. What you're going to do is you're going to produce backlash. Right. You're going to produce backlash by the people who like for just between, say, neighbors. 
Neighbor on the left-hand side makes, uh, you know, $120,000 a year. Neighbor on the right-hand side makes $125,000 a year. The person on the left-hand side qualifies for the $10,000 of loan forgiveness. Uh, the person on the right-hand side does not. Resentment builds, right? And yes, you can get a lower rate, but it's all that kind of stuff. Now, now that person who doesn't qualify just for, okay, $10,000, you're done. That person on that side basically now has to fill additional paperwork and to prove it. And, all that. and you have to build an apparatus, a bureaucratic apparatus to basically determine and to check and to surveil and to police who counts and who doesn't, who's deserving and who's not. And that costs money. So while they, they argue that they're kind of like, you know, they're, they're saving money. Right. Or they don't want the price tag to be too big. They're creating a structure in which it will require investments in a bureaucracy as opposed to investments in people. Right. Universal programs don't have that problem. Social Security does not have that problem. Medicare does not have that problem. Because regardless of your income, Right. When you retire, right, you qualify for Medicare, whether you use it or not as your business. Right. Public school is available for everyone. If you make $10 million a year. Right. And you're in school district X and you make $5,000 a year in your school district X, you both get to go. <laughs> right. You don't kind of lock the door for the people who have more money, right? Now, hear me out. I'm not saying that, well, therefore, I don't want, because you don't want to discriminate against it. No, no, right here. But as a practical matter, that's actually how you get more buy-in and less pushback. And you don't leave yourself open to these kind of lawsuits. And it appeals to this kind of this notion of fairness that we have in so much of our public discourse. Right. It's fair. Everybody gets it. Why do you get it? Because you're an American, period. End of story. Or that you live in America or you, you know, whatever. That's it. That's an easy end of the story. Right. And here's the other part of it. If you make a certain amount of money, right? If you're wealthy enough, right? Guess what? You probably don't have loans, <laughs> right? I mean, it's the same argument for like having like free college tuition, right? It's the same, same thing. If you have free college tuition, public university systems, right? Not the private schools like Harvard and all that other kind of stuff, right? Why do you do that? You have free college tuition to make sure that you're setting a floor, right? Just like we do with K through 12 schools, right? We have public K through 12 schools that we all invest into as part of a, you know, this is, we think this is a good as a country to make sure that people are educated. So we all contribute, whether we have kids or not, 
right? Because that's basically said, I might not have a kid, but you know what? That school is going to help train the person who's going to actually kind of build things um, that I'm going to benefit for or, or my kid or, you know, or my family will benefit for or I'll benefit for in the future. And I'm benefiting for things right now um, that have been built by people who went to those public schools. Cool. So I'm going to give back in here. I'm going to invest that just being as part of this, right? It's my part of my dues of being American, right? So we do that. And that doesn't bar somebody to go into a private school, right? There's no barrier. You have, you, you've got, you got the money, have at it, do what you're going to do with it. Right? Same thing here. If I, you know, if I have free public college or tuition for public schools or for public higher education, Right. That person wants to, you know, that family still wants to send their kid to Harvard or whatever. These private schools, you know, Hillsdale College, the right wing nut job folks up there have at it. You, well, they're not stopping you. But it's a private university. You supposedly care about the free market and all that stuff. So go spend it. Go for it. What the Democrats then do, they, they say like, well, yeah, but the, the rich person could go to the for school free. And what's the point? Is there a point to that story? One of the things that we've talked about, you know, like on this show, but we've been you know, we've studied more, you know, kind of like greatly is that you've had all this kind of like these separations, this bowling alone stuff. And you have, you know, we have these segregations, economic segregation, racial segregation, everything that happens all over this country. Right. The idea that like, OK, a rich person might go to a public school. Right. I would say that's a good thing. For everybody at that school, not because they have money. Right. But but it kind of like says, like, OK, we're not just going to segregate. OK, just poor people go here or just rich people go here. No. You know, there's a lot of benefit. Historically, there has been a lot of benefit when you have neighborhoods and towns and things like this where you have mixed income, mixed race. Right. And they all are there together. Right. Yes, you're going to have the kind of like, you know, the clicks of the rich people and the clicks of the, but they're in the same, they're interacting with each other. Now we just send people into their corners. Right. So anyways, I really didn't want to go that far into this, but uh, that's just kind of one thing that's just been bugging me about this is like, you know, look, instead of just saying $10,000 for everybody, additional $10,000 if you get, you know, these pal thing, right? Boom, done. It makes it much harder for these nut jobs to come in here and kind of like stoke racial resentment um, as a way of kind of destroying the administrative state. So whatever. Um, so that's that. <laughs> oh, God. But, you know, look, Biden this week did pardon thousands of people convicted of simple possession of marijuana under federal law. Um, like I said, you know, this is a huge step forward. I, per- I, I think especially in terms of public discourse. Right. And kind of breaking the glass on the uh, taboo of doing this kind of thing. Right. Now it's like, again, somebody is smart enough in the Biden administration to realize, like, look, like people, this is a popular move. This is not the kind of thing that, you know, is going to, you know, be run for cover. Sure enough, there are going to be people on, you know, Fox News and the right wing media that are going to lose their shit. But, you know, whatever. Vast majority of people support this. So why not do something popular for a change? Hey, we did it. Stroke of a pen once again. Right. Um, now, of course, it only applies like most convictions, right, for uh, possession of marijuana um, 
simple possession of marijuana. We're not talking about the dealers and all that kind of stuff. We're talking about the simple possession of marijuana. The bulk of those convictions are at the state level. So this does not apply, right? And this is the kind of thing where it, there's, it couldn't have applied, right? Biden could not have pardoned every the state level because that's not the way it works. It only worked at federal crimes, right? The D.C. code is included in this because of the way that uh, the D.C. jurisdiction is still ruled by Congress and they don't have um, direct representation. Uh, they have taxation without representation in D.C. So um, D.C. code is kind of included in that. But you're still talking about 6,500 people who are no longer going to have these kind of convictions on their record that's barring them from certain employment and housing and so on. It is a huge step forward. Right. And I think that's going to be beneficial for our political discourse um, for making to kind of normalizing this thing, saying, look, this is just wrong. So good. Um, I did want to talk a little bit about uh, Robinson Myers piece in The Atlantic, because uh, I've read I've read his he's a climate reporter. Um, I've been reading his stuff for a while and I've actually read some of his stuff in some of my classes. Um, and he tends to be a pretty kind of hard edge writer right he gets frustrated really quickly right um clearly he's been covering climate for so long and people are just not doing what they need to do and it's like you know kind of like you kind of screaming in the void for long enough you get a little crotchety right <laughs> right you say so and i don't want to characterize all his writing like that but you know that's been one of the things but <clears throat> he has this um it's a short piece short article uh it was published uh, a couple days ago and it's in the Atlantic, and it's called climate, The Climate Economy is About to Explode. A new report suggests that the Inflation Reduction Act could even be bigger than Congress thinks. I found this interesting and fascinating. We shall see how this plays out. But let me read you a little bit of this. It says, late last month, analysts at the investment bank Credit Suisse published a research note about America's new climate law that went nearly unnoticed. The Inflation Reduction Act, the bank argued, is even more important than has been recognized so far. The IRA, Inflation Reduction Act, the IRA will, quote, have a profound effect across industries in the next decade and beyond, unquote, and could ultimately shape the direction of the American economy, the bank said. The report shows how even after the bonanza of climate bill coverage earlier this year, we're still only beginning to understand how the law works and what it might mean for the economy. Right? This is really fascinating. The report made a few broad points in particular about what worth attending to. First, the IRA might spend twice as much as Congress thinks. I was like, what? So many of the IRA's most important provisions, such as its incentives for electric vehicles and zero carbon electricity, are uncapped tax credits. That means as long as you meet their terms, the government will award them. There's no budget or lit a limit written into the law that restricts how much the government can spend. The widely cited figure for how much the IRA will spend to fight climate change, $374 billion, is in large part determined by the Congressional Budget Office's estimate on how much those tax credits will, be, get, will get used. So in other words, right? In the past, you remember there's there were these incentives for electric vehicles. Like when Tesla was first kind of getting rolled out, um, there was these tax incentives that people were using. I forget several thousand dollars in tax credits that you would get if you bought a Tesla. But they were only good for about four years, right? Um, they only get about four years, and after those four years, um, they would uh, they would expire and they would no longer be there. They were also capped in terms of the numbers of vehicles. So once a certain number of vehicles were sold, then the, the incentives would start to go down, right? These are uncapped, right? 
And which means basically, yeah, they're assuming that maybe about X number of people will buy electric vehicles now, right? And that will roughly cost it at about this much. But that's a guess, right? What they couldn't predict and can't predict, right, is say like, okay, if we actually have incentives for people to do this, will more people then buy them than we think? There's some evidence right now in terms of the uh, the market, right? I, I wish I had had tagged flagged this too as well. It's an article I read a couple of days ago saying that Tesla has been, um, they, they were talking specifically about Tesla in this one. Tesla has kind of outperformed its widest, uh, its wildest expectations during this um, since these tax credits have gone into effect. So more people are actually going and buying Teslas. I would suspect that that is also true for the new Hyundai's that have come out, the new Kia's that have come out, the the new Ford cars that have come out. You know, the, uh, right across the board um, of electric vehicles. So that's fascinating, right? So never would have thought about that, right? So um, <clears throat> what the bank thinks, right, is that the estimate of how many people will use those tax credit is just wrong, and so they're thinking that you're not talking about a, a three hundred and seventy four billion dollars will be spent but something closer to 800 billion right that's pretty that's pretty crazy right um they say is that in fact so many people um and businesses will use those tax credits that the ira's total spending will be like this 800 billion double what the cbo projects and because federal spending tends to catalyze private investment that could send total climate spending across the economy to roughly 1.7 trillion over the next 10 years that's significantly more money flowing into green economy or green energy energies than the CBO projected, right? Because it's that cascading effect, right? If more people are buying these things, then you need to invest in more of the infrastructure, right? And the charging stations, right? And the solar panels, right? All this other kinds of stuff. The second part of this was a, the U.S. is poised to become a world-leading energy provider, according to the bank. Um, America is already the world's largest producer of oil and natural gas. We know that the IRA could further enhance its advantage in all forms of energy production by giving it, quote, a competitive advantage in low cost, clean energy or clean electricity and hydrogen um, production, infrastructure, geological storage and human capital, the report states. By 2029, the U.S. solar um, and wind could be the cheapest in the world at less than $5 per megawatt hour, the bank projects. It will also become a competitive in hydrogen, carbon capture, and storage, and wind turbines. It's fascinating stuff. Right? They said that the real limits right, on this are political. Right? So... Um, just because, you know, that's, this is the IRA is enacted. Yes, there's ways that, say, the Republicans could get in there and try to mess this up or stop it or this other stuff. Um, you're going to have Republican-leading states, according to the report, to say you're going to see less of the investment. Um, or I'm sorry, the Republican-leading states are likely to see the most investment job economic benefits from the IRA, the report claims. Um, the uh, About the way this all plays out in terms of where this development will happen. Um, the way that it's it's tiered. Um, the biggest challenge will be one political. Will they try somebody try to stop it? Probably not. They're saying in part because the people in the reddest states are going to be ones that are going to be receiving a lot of the benefits of the bill, which is fascinating, right? The economic development stuff. Um, the biggest question is about the the infrastructure. Is that because we have an outmoded um, um, energy infrastructure? Um, and that would require a whole nother level of investment that is not accounted for that the infrastructure may not be able to handle it. 
And if the infrastructure can't handle it, that'll stymie the whole kind of development. So just an interesting thing. Um, so what I found fascinating about it, one, uh, Robinson Myers kind of fairly cheery tone. And number two, the fact this report was coming from um, an investment bank, right, who tend to be not so kind of like bullish, to use that word, on um, uh, green energy stuff. Um, but they're doing the math and they're making these kind of predictions. And this, I think even that report itself, as that solely comes to come out, is going to have some impact. So interesting stuff. Um, last thing, uh, yeah, we got cop 27 coming up in Egypt and, uh, there was a gathering in Tunisia of kind of youth activists, um, from the global South, um, that are preparing for, to put some pressure on folks there, which is exactly what we're going to need. So. Uh, anyways, okay, I'm going to take a quick break and to come back and talk about a couple things locally and, um, and then we'll be kind of out for the day. Um, hope you all are doing well and we'll see you on the flip side. I'm Rick Smith and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1879. The man who came to be known as Joe Hill was born Joel Emanuel Hagland in Gavel, Switzerland. Hill traveled the United States organizing for the grassroots labor organization, the Industrial Workers of the World. He is most remembered for the songs he wrote about working people he met in his travels. Many of the songs were set to the music of popular hymns and tunes of the day. Hill was executed by firing squad in Utah in 1915 for what many believe were trumped up charges. He was accused of murder and convicted despite a lack of evidence. His real crime was labor organizing. His trial became a national story. On Hill's birthday, let us take a moment to remember some of the lyrics of two of his most famous songs. The first was Rebel Girl, which he wrote for fellow Wobbly organizer Elizabeth Gurley Flynn. Though her hands may be hardened from labor, and her dress may not be very fine, but a heart in her bosom is beating, that is true to her class and her kind. Another famous song was the iconic There Is Power in a Union, where he writes, Oh, if you like sluggers, Beat in your head, but don't organize all union despise. If you want nothing before you are dead, shake hands with your boss and look wise. After his execution, Joe Hill's ashes were sent to every state across the country, every state except Utah. And so today, we wish you a happy birthday, Joe Hill, wherever you are. Like what you hear? Check out more at laborhistoryin2.com. Hey everybody, everybody, welcome back, welcome back. Uh, this is Kevin Mahoney, creator and founder of Raging Chicken, here for our Friday Politics Roundup. Um, hope everyone is doing well. Uh, if you just joined us, we're going into a little more PA focus here. Um, one, and this just dropped yesterday, I believe, uh, the ACLU, yes, uh, has filed uh, a lawsuit against Central Park School District uh, about the discrimination against L LGBTQ students. 
Um, this is a really significant development and uh, was predictable because they said they will. They were already looking into it. Um, so the ACLU claims, and this is from reporting uh, WHYY, Emily Rizzo, doing awesome work as usual. Um, the ACLU claims that Central Bucks, the fourth largest school in the school district of Pennsylvania, has violated Title IX and the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment of the United States Constitution, overall creating a hostile environment for LGBTQ students. The school board and, quote, complicit upper-level administrators, unquote, have, quote, exacerbated the hostile environment by making homophobic and transphobic statements, enacting blatantly discriminatory practices and policies targeting LGBTQ plus students, and retaliating against teachers and staff who support LGBTQ plus students, the complaint says. Right. The LCLU cites policies censoring books, procedures about not using students' correct pronouns and names, directives censoring materials that teachers can hang in classrooms and intimidating teachers into self-censoring their materials, and administrative decisions punishing staff who speak out against anti-LGBTQ directives, among others, as examples of central bucks discriminatory practices and policies. Right. So this is uh, this is it, folks. Right. Um, I hope we're going to see a lot of amicus briefs that are going to come in in support of this lawsuit. Um, and um, we're going to see how what happens now when the rubber hits the road. Right. So clearly the Central Park School Board has not been responding to uh, parents and community members who have been raising these problems. They have not responded to um, in any effective way when. Um, they've been pressured by the ACLU and a range of other groups, and we're talking about what they're doing is going to have a negative effect upon these students. They have not cared about any of that stuff. So here you go. Final straw. We're going to drop the lawsuit, and that's what they did. Um, and good on them. All right, Good on the ACLU uh, of Pennsylvania. I really uh, i am glad to see this is going to happening. And like, like many cases, I say, you know, this is the only thing that gets these people to move in the end sometimes. Right? Um, of course, the nagging in the back of my brain always has like, well, given all the kind of uh, Republican domination of the courts, right, at the federal level, things like this, are we going to, is this going to be all sorts of problems? But whatever, this is going to be, um, the, the, you know, these folks are going to have to decide whether or not that it's worth uh, kind of oppressing LGBTQ uh, plus students, if that is um, a will that uh, a hill that they want to die on, um, and we shall see. At this point, it does look like that's what they want to do. Uh, the filing basically by ACLU has a list of six policies and public statements and actions that they say are discriminatory, which I kind of mentioned some of those above. Um, now, what they also do is they also list six ways that the district has rejected staff training on LGBTQ inclusivity and intimidated staff who oppose uh, center box actions. Right. So not only I mean, you know, they talk about here about the ways that um, Central Bucks School District has basically broken ties with organizations that provided training or kind of um, help. For example, in March, the district cut ties with CB Cares, a local education foundation that gave teachers grants for LGBTQ related resources, for example. Uh, the district cut ties with a gender and sexuality clinic at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia in May, CHOP. Um, before 2020, CHOP conducted staff training on how to support trans youth. In May, the district canceled its training and, quote, indicated that the training would likely not occur again. Administrators blamed the cancellation on an employee's union requesting equal lunch breaks for all staff during uh, staff development days. All right, so they're going to blame the union. I told you this is coming, right? The attacks against the unions are coming in central bucks as they go into contract negotiations. Um 
So, uh, so there you go. So they've got, you know, this is great reporting. We're going to see more about this. We're going to be following this. Uh, of course, it's one of the reasons why I have next week on, um, I'm sorry, not ne- this coming week, but the, on the, the 17th, I'll have Sharon Ward um, on the show from the Education Law Center of Philadelphia or, or of Pennsylvania, which is based out of Philadelphia. Um, Sharon, uh, you may have recognized her name. She's been quoted multiple times in kind of the local press um, for coverage over this. Uh, the Education Law Center of PA um, down in Philadelphia, they have phenomenal resources in supporting uh, DEI initiatives um, and kind of ensuring students um, uh, equal access to facilities. They do great work on supporting disabled students. Um, it's just super stuff. So I'm really psyched that she's going to be on. She's a senior policy advisor with the Education Law Center. Uh, she'll be on on the 17th um, to talk about exactly some of these issues. And by that point, we might even have some more details about this ACLU suit, um, ACLU suit that we'll be able to chat about. Um, so that'll be good. Um, yeah, it's been pretty crazy. This other thing, too, is like where the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and um, along with other major medical groups have been um, – have urging the federal government, particularly the uh, Department of Justice, to investigate these threats against the hospital. I'll give you a little bit from the Philadelphia Inquirer on this. The uh, Children's Hospital of Philadelphia is among several hospitals nationwide that have been targeted by conservative social media influencers. In recent weeks, accounts with hundreds of thousands of followers have posted clips from lectures in which CHOP providers discuss gender-affirming care for youth. In a recent example, the Post characterized the work as unethical and accused a doctor of preying on vulnerable children for the sake of research. In in response, CHOP received threats against its gender and sexuality development clinic, which we just mentioned, right, with uh, Central Bucks, received threats against its gender and sexuality development clinic, according to a statement from the hospital. CHOP didn't elaborate on the nature of the threats. Say, quote, as a result, we have taken a series of security and other measures both to ensure the safety of our staff and to safeguard the resources our patients and families need for quality care, a spokesperson with the hospital said. On Monday this week, the American Academy of Pediatrics, the American Medical Association, and the Children's Hospital Association made their request in a letter to Attorney General Merrick Garland. And it said, quote, we write to urge you to investigate the organizations, individuals and entities coordinating, provoking and carrying out bomb threats and threats of personal violence against children's hospitals and physicians across the United States. Right. The associations represent more than 270,000 physicians and more than 220 children's hospitals across the country. Right. They're also urging tech companies to do more to kind of clamp down on this stuff. Right. So there you go. Right. Um, Here we have, again, once again, a straight line between these billionaire funders funding extremist organizations to stoke cultural wars against trans kids, against uh, kind of uh, uh, um, gender nonconforming kind of students, against uh, uh, racial equity, against any all this kind of stuff that we see in our school boards. Right. All the kind of insanity and the extremism that we see kind of be brought there. They stoke these flames, dump a ton of money in behind it. These influencers, social media influencers are tapping into that spigot. Right. They're getting their like getting their, uh, you know, their kickbacks. Right. Some of them are directly funded. Some of them kind of directed uh, funded by the algorithms. Right. Um, They go out and they start encouraging direct attacks against hospitals who do gender-affirming care, right? 
and they have so there you go you know it's a direct line so big funders like yes like paul martino like you know all these folks that are kind of are polluting our our uh, political discourse and communities um, with their extremist agendas right we see the direct line what goes on now you have uh, hospitals having to kind of uh, worry about bomb threats and direct attacks on their staff it's not gonna be pretty these people will use violence and they don't care they will use violence in order to accomplish their ends and that's precisely what they're doing uh, I found this interesting that because uh, you know as I said we're gonna we're gonna start seeing that the uh, that they're, the attacks against teachers unions are gonna start happening pretty soon. well they've always, they've never stopped but I got to ramp up. Um, I've mentioned this on the show multiple times. Paul Martino was at the Central Bucks School District meeting last year after they, you know, whatever, after the elections and after they kind of, you know, going after the mask mandates and they wanted to reopen all the school, all that kind of stuff, right? Um, and basically, what that one of these, one of the last meetings of last year, I believe, was when he was demanding that two members of the school board who were Democrats step down. Um, in upcoming contract negotiations, or not stepped down, recused themselves from contract negotiations. Why? He says because PSEA, right, uh, the teachers union, had given, had supported them, had endorsed them, maybe given them money too as well, I'm not sure, but at least endorsed them in here and basically saying they're biased so they should be pulled up. And then goes on along with these other right wing nut jobs in the area who basically say that, you know, the teachers unions control our politics and they're causing all these problems in our schools. And they are the special interests that are kind of polluting interests more or polluting the discourse more than anyone else. Right. Well, uh, Philly Power Research just uh, tweeted out this nice little graph um, yesterday that kind of says, OK, you're making these claims. Let's take a look at it. So I got an idea. Let's take uh, a look at um, two groups. One. Uh, the PA State Education Association, PSEA, the Teachers Union. We're going to look at their contributions next to Students First PAC. Why Students First PAC? Because Students First PAC is basically funded nearly 100% by Jeffrey Yass, one person, right? As so they have a little chart. So back in from 27 or 2017 to 2019, um, both PSEA and uh, Students First PAC, Jeffrey Yass's PAC, um, both contributed almost identical amounts um, in each of those years, right? Went from next to very, very little, right, to a kind of about you know, maybe about $3 million, $2.5 million, somewhere in that in that range, right? Um, it's hard to tell precisely on this graph. That was 2018, right? Then after that, teachers' union spending went down, right? Almost like to a level lower than it had been in 2017, where students' first pack continued to go up, right? So back in 2019, right, you had, I mean, maybe, I mean, under a million dollars uh, was spent by uh, the PSEA, while closer to uh, $5 million or more was spent by uh, students' first pack, Jeffrey Yass's pack, right? Since then, PSEA spending has been kind of like a little bit up, a little bit down, a little bit up, a little down, but has still never reached the level that it was in 20, 2018. It's high peak, right? Then it's still below. And now today, its funding is like below $2 million, right? So $1.8 million, maybe I'm guessing somewhere in there. Where students first pack, Jeffrey Yass's pack, has continued to expand. And while they went, they went to a peak of over $12 million in 2020, 
right, stayed at around $12 billion, just over $12 billion in 2021. And they have declined since then. And now they're only given around $10 million compared to under $2 million from PSEA. Right. So PSEA, who represents over 187,000 people, according to, you know, Philly Power Research, what they're saying here. Right. That basically amounts to if you divide it among like all the all the people who contributed. Right. All because they're members, not every teacher, but just the members, 187,000 members. That about works to be about about forty four dollars per member since twenty seventeen. Jeffrey Yass, however, we look at for, now that's since 2017. That's cumulative, right? $44 per member since 2017. For Jeffrey Yass, aka Students First Pack, one person, mostly one person, has contributed $43 million. $43 million for one person. How about that? So, I mean, the numbers are clear, right? Uh, about where, like, what's actually happening here. So they're going to put up the red herring. They're going to kind of the, want the union to be the straw, the, you know, the, the 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 straw figure that they could go after. Um, but in the end, uh, you know, the proof is in the pudding. So all all the more reason why, you know, if you kind of are around and you can make it down, if you're down in the Ballasinwood um, um, area on tomorrow. Um, at 1130, I'm sorry, not tomorrow, on the 13th, which is next Thursday, um, at 1130 a.m., they'll be protesting Jeffrey Yass. And that's going to be outside of his uh, Susquehanna International Group City Ave office, right? That is 401 City Avenue in Ballasinwood. Um, there's a link on that, which I'll include in the show notes, too, as well. You get out more information um, to put some more attention on that. All right. Um <clears throat> Yes, uh, Emily said this from a while back. I should have mentioned it at the time. Uh, we were talking about the Supreme Court decision. She said, I expect to read uh, many a brilliant dissent from New Justice KBJ, um, uh, uh, Katanji Brown-Jackson. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, her, dis- her kind of uh, questioning this week um, and correcting the record on how race was understood and how that the founders did not have a race-neutral way of understanding the way that the world works. They were actually very race-conscious um in you know uh, in a bunch of different ways it it was just great so we're definitely going to hear more from her um so i'm going to leave you today with just a little bit of a story um so at the beginning of the week i think one of the reasons i was like wiped out from the beginning of the week and just was slow moving so i got my uh the latest kind of covid booster on monday and just like when i got my booster the last time um i got the the following day i just got i was just tired a little bit wiped out um that was it. Just, and then by Wednesday, it was gone. Um, but anyway, so, so I just wanted to get it. You know, um, it's, you know, with the new variants and all this other kinds of stuff. And I want to get my flu shot anyway. So, okay, I'm going to do that on Monday, uh, first thing. And then I've got the whole day that I'll be able to work and blah, blah, blah. So I sign up and I get the I get an appointment down at the CVS down in Souderton, right? And it was the one that was available when I could make it. So I said, okay, great, perfect. Go down there and get the shot. Um go down there, you know, the, the, the pharmacist or kind of a pharmacy technician, I'm not sure what his, um, what specifically he was, right. You know, what his role was or job title, or whatever it was, but you know, the one to give me the shot. Um, and I've gotten the shot at CVS before, but just not at the one in the Southern, right. This was a different one. So I sit down there, 
um, he gives me the shot, gives me the, you know, gives me the flu shot, then gives me the COVID booster, right? And we're all done, right? And, you know, I'm getting, you know, set to go. And he's like, you know, sitting where I can't really leave without kind of like pushing past him, right? Because where, where the, the thing is set up. So I'm just sitting there waiting and he's like, yeah, I don't know about these, uh, all these vaccines. I don't know about all these boosters. I really question whether or not, uh, you know, if they're really worth it. It's like, you know, whether it's just a, you know, the pharmaceutical company is looking for, you know, uh, making more money or if it's a some kind of political agenda. I don't know if he said political agenda, but somebody is pushing their agenda, I think is what he said. All right. And I'm like, are you serious? You just gave me this vaccine and now you want to kind of what you want to, you know, bait me. <clears throat> so I say just like I, I just want to leave. Right. So I'm just like, OK, I said, yeah, you know, look, I said the way I look at it. I follow the science as best I can. Right. And I think that's what everybody's trying to do. You know, it's the best you can trying to keep myself, myself safe, my family safe. Right. And um, and, and kind of was on. And that's kind of like, you know, so, you know, oh, OK, blah, blah. And then I'm going to go. Right. No, he still says he still s- like sits there and then starts talking about how. Yeah, just doesn't think that this is going this is uh, this is a good idea that everything that the disruptions that have been caused around COVID and people working out their agendas um, that's had major impacts on things. I was like, well, look, I said, I looked at I look at it just as a matter of respect for the people around me. Right. It's like, you know, I said, just like I said, it's just like when I would wear a mask, I'd wear a mask because like even if I'm if, you know, it doesn't. Primarily, he's not there to protect me. It's to protect other people from getting droplets come here. If we all did that together, right, respected each other, then we'd be fine. He's like, well, I haven't worn a mask for most of the pandemic, right? He had a mask on at the time, though, because he's required to do by his job. But, um, and I'm like, oh, God, here we go. He's like, yeah, but if you want to respect, if you really want to have respect, we just have to get back to uh family values right because we've gotten away from family family values and that's what really kind of matters about this and i'm like oh my god right and so once he says this and once he said this stuff about the mask now i know what all the talking points are going to be right so i'm like all right (laughs) we're gonna do this okay we're gonna do this and so we had up this 15 minute argument right sitting there right um in the little vaccine area Right. See, I tried to get out of the conversation several times. Like I gave him an out like, hey, let's close it here. Right. Nope. He comes back in. And so in that conversation, I won't take you through the blow by blow, but in that conversation. So it goes through, says we need to get back to family values. And I'm like, well, you know, it's pretty hard to get back to family values when you have an entire society around you. That's kind of basically being really incredibly hard on families, in particular kind of working, working families and kind of middle class families. Right. It's like, yes, but if you got to do family, he's like, I can't think about those big things. I'm like I got to focus on what I can do, like family values. Well, so, well, you know, family values means that we kind of support each other. Right. Just like that masking thing. Right. right. We do this because we, we take care of each other as a family. And it's like we extend that, that we're going to extend those values, right, of taking care of each other to other people, too, as well, which is why we do this, which is why we get a vaccine, which is why we do this kind of stuff. Right. He's like, no, 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 that's not what I mean. Right. So like, we just need to get back to the nuclear family. It goes the nuclear family. I'm like, ah, here we go. And now we're even going deeper. Right. So I was waiting for him to pull out the kind of like, you know, uh, you know, all the anti trans stuff at that point, but he didn't get that far. Um, 
he did go and said like, yes, but we just need to have, get back to the respect. Like, I think if you're going to run for office or you're going to have a job that you should dress for the job. Right. And I'm like, I'm like, I'm like, what does that have to do? Like, you shouldn't be wearing a hoodie around. Right. So again, that's code for Fetterman. Right. So, I mean, this guy was literally running through the right wing talking points. Right. But it was filtered with I'm representing the way he's talking uh, a little bit uh, incorrectly. He was very calm and soft spoken as he was saying all this stuff, which tells me he's got training in a church. Right. Um, that's uh, that's usually what that happens. Right. Not kind of like the nut job churches, but kind of one of the kind of, you know, uh, very established churches um, that has uh, significant powers in this area. That'd be my guess. I, I can't prove that um, we didn't exchange like, you know, numbers to follow up on each other's history or something like this. Um, but whatever. So it was crazy. And I gave him this one example, right? And you come back to family values. He's like, well, he's, those bigger things, like you can't, you, you have to do the family values first. I said, how do you do this? I said, let me just give you an example, right? <clears throat> he had asked me like what I did or something like this. And he said, oh, you teach at Kutztown or something. I don't know. Maybe I had it in the form that I had to fill out. I don't know. Or you, you said, oh, you teach us yet. And so I basically said, let me just give you an example. When I went to college, right? I went to Syracuse University, which is a private university, right? And I said, we didn't have a whole lot, right? But tuition at that time was about $16,000 at Syracuse University when I was a kid, right? Um, my parents were really supportive of me. They, I got to see a bunch of other different schools. I looked all around, tried to make a determined. They wanted to make this happen for me. So, I, I mean, thank God I qualified for a bunch of financial aid, right? I got some scholarships, right? And then I took the rest out in loans. But that was what made it possible for me to go to that place. Right. And my parents were supportive throughout the process. Right. Now, Syracuse University is upwards of $60,000 a year. That is so far beyond the rate of inflation during that period of time. Right. But if you put it, if you did adjust for inflation, would basically say if that if Syracuse University cost that much at that at the time that I was growing up. Right. I would not have never gone to that school. I never could have. I could not possibly have afforded to go there. Right. I said, and so, and even so, even though I qualified for this aid and this other stuff, I left Syracuse University at that time with, you know, 25, whatever thousand dollars worth of debt, something like that, $20,000, something like that. <clears throat> and I, today, right, I have all these students that I teach. I've met some of their parents, right? I see families who are incredibly supportive of their, of their kids, who are very excited their kids are going to college. Want to make every other way, if work, do whatever they can to make it work for these kids so that they can go to college. They're as supportive as my family was, right? Except today, those kids are going to a state university, Kutztown University, and they are going to come out of college with more debt than I had. They're going to be coming out of college with $30,000, $40,000 worth of debt. And now that is a burden on that individual, that student, and their families, right? Same families, same family values, different points in time. What's the difference? The difference in, in those 40, 50 years that have kind of like have passed after this, or 40 years, 30 years, whatever, since then, right? We've made a decision to take money out of those public resources, out of our public schools, out of kind of support for education, and give it to people like Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, and the rest. 
that's a decision that family values can't fix, right? That's a policy decision, right? So that's what I mean. You want to support those families? You got to fix that. <clears throat> that's what it means to support family values. And then finally, he's like, oh, I got to get back to work, right? And then he, then he, you know, it's like after 15 minutes, he had had enough. It was good. <clears throat> so anyways, that's my little story. Um, went to just get a vaccine, do the right thing. And I ended up kind of like all pissed off and charged up after this conversation with this guy. It's so crazy. It's so crazy. Anyways, I agree, Kirsten. It is hard to get some people to understand the debt burden. It is, uh, it's, it's very, very difficult. It's like, you know, that's, that's actually one of these things that I've, 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 I've thought about a lot as I've had to have those conversations with people over the years, you know, and have consistently tried to look at better ways of, relaying that um in you know in a coherent way because i mean obviously there's the big long explanations of but people are going to sit through that so how do you actually go ahead and uh uh how do you actually go ahead and kind of talk to them in ways that it's just like you know it's really digestible right that's really the um the biggest issue so yeah thank you jenny god bless me and peace be with you exactly exactly oh god kirsten also says everyone gauges problems by their own experience they don't get that as exponentially higher um, now than it was 40 years ago exactly and that's a real and that's a real problem and this is where you know i think uh, in in most of our i mean look there's there's the you know the right wing they know exactly what they're doing right we're never going to kind of do that but i think that um this is where in say conversation with people right um, we can, if we, if we can accept the fact that people's experiences don't match what, what our current conditions are, right. And there's that big generation gap that is the, one of those points that allows us to be a little bit generous, right. In our discussions, because, um, I can't tell you how many times I've talked with, you know, um, with people, even like adults, you know, like parents of students. And I say just what I said here, right. A version of that say, yeah, look, I mean, we're talking about a very different thing. You can see them kind of like it kind of resonate, right? I also, my friend Rick, Rick's, you know, Rick of Rick Smith Show has always said, um, uses the example of a friend of his um, that I would always tell the story is that she went on and she became a lawyer, right? Um, she got a law degree from the University of Michigan. Um, but when she was going through college, and this is kind of years ago, this is before even my time, I think, um, she was able to work, she worked as a, a, a kind of a waitress in a, a diner. Um, or a restaurant, diner, something like this. And she worked her way through college, right? She paid her tuition with her, with the funds that she made. And she worked over the summer and then kind of worked through the year and was able to pay for her tuition. And then when she graduated, right, she went on, continued to work. And then she went to law school at the University of Michigan. And she was able to work her way through law school. She went all the way through law school with zero debt. And she didn't come from money. It wasn't like daddy and mommy were giving her money. She paid for her own education, right? And that's the way public higher education used to be designed here, right? Now we've turned it into this thing, but no, no, no. We're just going to kind of like make you suffer, right? We're going to saddle you with debt. We're going to control you more or whatever it is, you know, how you want to look at it. And so that story too is one that's always stood out for me is like, that is like, uh, like not even possible now, right? The fact that you know, free college tuition used to be a, a, a reality, right? University of California, the CUNY system, for example, used to be a reality or kind of like affordable where you can actually work your way. That was something that I think a lot of, say, parents and grandparents of my students that I have now, that was their experience. So kind of getting them to see that difference is kind of really important. 
Um, and, you know, ideally for me, when I'm talking to them, I, I also want them to see their, you know, their kid or their grandkid in a different way, too. It's not that they're lazy. <laughs> All right. That's not why they have debt. Right. That's, they are working. Right. I see them working. I know they're working. Sometimes I get messages saying, listen, I had to work a double shift today. Uh, can I have an extension on my paper? And I'm like, sure. <laughs> right. So, yeah. But Emily makes a good point, too, as well. It's not just student debt. Right. We're also talking about uh, medical debt. We're talking about mortgage debt. Um, and, you know, that's what finance capitalism is all about. Right. Um, controlling us through debt um, as opposed to. Um, directly controlling us through threats. But now we got both, right? Now we got the Christian nationalists and we've got the financiers uh, controlling our lives. So, woohoo. <laughs> Anyways, all, I really appreciate the time. Uh, good looking out. Um, so just a reminder, uh, we will not have a show on Monday. It's my son's birthday. Um, but I will put be putting up a kind of an out to coop extra um, that will kind of be a little bit of kind of dialogue with uh, a recent episode of the run-up from the, that New York Times podcast. Um, which looks in a little bit about kind of this kind of messaging question when it comes to uh, Democratic Party stuff. So um, so look for that ahead. And then on October 17th, we're going to have um, uh, Sharon Ward. Uh, she is a senior advisor to the Educational Law Center of Pennsylvania based out of Philadelphia. And we're going to be talking about these moves that have been uh, taking place in the school boards. Uh, we saw the ACLU following suit um, already uh, about Central Bucks. Um, but Central Bucks and Penridge School District have been passing really kind of draconian um, policies that have been censoring books uh, and putting uh, LGBTQ students especially, um, but also kind of uh, folks in racial minorities in kind of like serious um, hostile environments. Um, and so we're going to be talking a little bit about that on the 17th. Uh, but for now, um, I wish you all well. Uh, I wish you all a good weekend. It's supposed to be some decent weather. We're not going to get all the uh, nonstop rain all weekend long, so I hope you're going to be able to enjoy it. Um, get out there, stretch your legs. I know there's going to be a bunch of you who are going to be out there uh, knocking on doors this weekend. Uh, you, you all rock um, and are going to be doing what you can to ensure that uh, we have a really good midterm election. Uh, but for now, this is Kevin Mahoney, uh, creator and founder of Raging Chicken. Um, we'll be back next week. Um, yeah, we'll be back next week. We'll be back next week. We'll see you next week, right? In the meantime, have a great one, everybody. Take care of each other. Take care of yourself. Let's keep up the fight. See ya!